cliche that politics makes strange bedfellows is only too true. At one time or another, various and sundry politicians have found themselves, when it proved expedient, of course, sharing a blanket with the military, organized crime, disgruntled gun-toting dairy farmers, the church, famous athletes, the comedians. The list is endless. But there was a senatorial race not so long ago right here in Illinois where the strangest bedfellow of all was found under the sheets. The strangest and certainly the most terrifying. That was the voice of reporter Carl Kolchak in the case that we're calling The Devil's Platform, which is not actually like a platform that you stand on, but it's a political platform. So kind of a double meaning here. It should have been The, the Devil's Pulpit, maybe, but it doesn't have a nice ring to it. This is the seventh episode of The Night Stalker, and this one was broadcast November 15th, 1974. We're not quite to Thanksgiving here, and I don't believe that Kolchak had a mid-season break where they took off for like six weeks and left you with leftovers or specials and uh, holiday things and award shows, those kind of things. Well, not yet. They they did do that later on in between episodes 11 and 12, but not this episode. But not now, no. It was, they did take a, a Christmas break from December 20th to January 10th, so... Kind of. I think that's a little shorter than they do now for TV. But you didn't even let the listeners lo- know who we are. Like, we're just all over the place today. I know. I know. Well, it's, I'm out of practice. We recorded last, like, four months ago. How time goes by when you're overseas, right? It's that new math that's driving kids to the streets. Yeah, it's metric. Government shut down. Time for metric. I am Mike White, one of the half of the podcast of the hosts of the Kolchak Tapes. And I'm Chris Stashew, and boy, I'm glad to be back talking about Kolchak. And no, that's not sarcasm. I'm dead serious. No, this was a great episode, I thought. Pretty solid. This is maybe my favorite episode so far. It uh, has a, it has a good payoff. I mean, the, and it has like kind of like a... Obviously, you know, when we talked about the original two kind of movies before the 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 syndicated show you know we talked about night stalker and night strangler they were much darker and then when you go to the show kolshak the night stalker it gets a little bit more humorous and the ending of this show of this episode the devil's platform is humorous in a way that feels very like x-files humor where it's, you know, it, what it almost felt like to me was it felt like Kolshak in an episode of The Twilight Zone. The ending has like a kind of like a good like twist to it. And you're just like, oh, man, that's a good that's a that's a pretty good ending. Like, Be careful what you wish for. Well, like the original pilot movie, The Night Stalker, this has a good villain. And even though we don't necessarily see the villain that much, I'd say we pound for pound, we see him probably about as much as we see Yana Skorzenay, though we see him in other forms, let's say. Well, he becomes a, a dog. And I, I, are we really led to believe that Kolshak doesn't know what a Rottweiler is? Because at one point in the episode, he's talking about how he has never seen a dog with five toes. Obviously, hearkening back to how Tom Skerritt's character becomes a dog to escape capture and to, to wreak havoc. And he's like, I've never seen this dog before. It's black and brown. It's like, you say that to anyone. They're like, that's a Rottweiler. But it's like, he's never seen a Rottweiler before. Did we not import Rottweilers before 1974? And had he never seen a Doberman and just said, it looks like a fat Doberman. It's just one of those things where it, it led to a good back and forth between 
Kolshak and Updike, which is good because their chemistry is great and his and Kolshak's chemistry with Vincenzo is always fantastic. But just the way that the way that they were talking about it, it's just like, what the hell is going on here? Like, I get grasping at straws, but this is a little much even for Kolshak. Frankly, I didn't count the toes. Like, uh, if we go back to the episode and like pause it when uh, the paws are out, are we seeing five toes there? Did they glue an extra toe onto this dog's paw? I would like to think that there was someone in makeup who was like, you have to glue an extra paw finger to this dog's paw. Or what is, what's that called? Does that have a name? It's the hoof. Wait, what is the little thing called? Like, they're, are they fingers? Like a toe or a pad or... Now this is a question I need answered. What do you call the thing on the dog's foot? Is it, is a, I don't know. Is it a pad? I thought the pad was the bottom of... The pad's the bottom, yeah. We just get a vet on this podcast and ask them a question. This is like phone a friend. But yeah, you know, it's weird because they made a big point of it. But, you know, back in 74, I don't think anyone had really was like pausing it and going back to make sure. I think they were just like, oh, okay, you know, it was too fast for us to really tell anyways well i hear that kino lorber is going to be releasing a 4k box set or at least episodes so hopefully it's a box set of kolchak the night stalker and wouldn't that be something to see that restored in 4k and be able to count the the toes well that's the thing is it the show or just strangler and uh stalker i was seeing just strangler and stalker before but then i keep reading the show unless people are just confusing the night i would assume it's confusing yeah probably which is a bummer because this show has yes it got in the was it the mid 90s early 2000s i guess early 2000s mid 2000s it got the dvd release that if you are a fan of the show you own and then the the movies got a dvd release that's out of print and is insanely expensive to find i've seen on the Shack facebook page a couple times it going for like 50 60 bucks at least at like half price books which again i mean i remember paying back in the mid like mid 2000s paying for a copy of fletch on dvd off ebay and it was like 30 bucks because it was out of print i mean that's a thing and it's good to see kino lorber is putting some effort into bringing the show back into the kind of the, the public eye but at the same time like you need to do the show i mean the movies are great let's be honest the movies are the best part about coal shack but the show has its own place in my heart a special place in my heart it's not as good as the movies but it's not bad and i'll tell you i reached out to kino lorber and said if you guys need any audio commentary i know two guys that run a podcast dedicated to kolchak and they said yeah do you know uh, mark dewitziak's phone number <laughs> of course uh, fuck these two schmoes <laughs> you know the guy who wrote that book yeah, we'll talk to him. You guys, yeah, we don't want any of that. But hey, that's because we're not actors. If we were actors and they brought back Kolshak the Night Stalker, they probably would cast us in bit parts, like they did for Kumail Nanjiani from his X-Files podcast. But uh, for us, we're not actors. We're two, like, you know, normal-looking guys. I think schmoes was probably the best term for it. Yeah, that, you know, I like to think of myself as less schmo, more normal, but, you know, schmo on a normal day is okay, I guess. Yeah, I'm seeing no reports that it's actually the show. I just see the Night Stalker and the Night Strangler. So I think people are just like, oh, the Night Stalker. Which, again, it's unfortunate because when you have an episode like this that's actually good, that doesn't feel mashed together and all over the place like um, the zombie episode, which is one of the least successful episodes of the show that we've seen. It's unfortunate because there are a lot 
lot of shows out there that have been kind of lost to VHS and digital. And, you know, that when that happened, when VHS and DVD happened, things tend to get lost because things never get a DVD release. Cole Shack thankfully got a DVD release, but now it's extremely hard to find. And it's not streaming anywhere either. It was on Netflix for the longest time, but not anymore. It's funny that we're saying that this is a very solid episode because speaking of Mark Nowitzki and his book, uh, the Night Stalker Companion, he's like, oh yeah, no wonder this episode is muddled. Five different writers worked on it. Feels kind of more solid than five different writers worked on. I mean, they gave one guy story credit, one guy screen credit. I'm sure there are a lot of people punching it up, doing rewrites and stuff, but I thought it moved pretty good. The only part of confusion that I had was towards the end when Carl grabs some holy water and he apologizes to Miss Emily, like kind of out loud. And I was like, did she bring that back from Italy? And I had completely forgotten that part. So I was more concentrating on Carl's new hat at that point. Yeah, no, there was a point where she's like, I brought this back for myself. It's a bottle of holy water. And I was thinking to myself, well, that's got to factor into this at some point, because obviously this is a satanic episode. So, of course, holy water makes an appearance, as it does in any good satanic slash exorcism story told in the pop culture stage. So, I mean, look at any exorcist movie. Someone's got a vial of holy water at some point. Or now you so. get real clever with it and you you put it in a super soaker. <laughs> uh, oh, dear God. And then you make a circle of salt on the ground and you stand inside it and you keep the demon inside. All right, Dean. That show is in its 13th season, folks. Just never forget. <laughs> And X-Files is back. I haven't watched it. Well, it's because it's bad. <laughs> it's it's because, again, Chris Carter's at it again, folks. He's he's taken that mythology and just saying, never mind. So, and, you know, if Kolshak came back in, in this day and age, in the quote-unquote golden age of television, I think the show could do quite well. But, I mean, we need to get a release of the show first, and we need to get more people seeing episodes like this one, with actual villains and actual great performances by said villain, and Tom Skerritt's awesome in this episode. He's, like, the best part of this episode. Well, we start with Carl giving his VO, and it's coming this time from a tape recorder, and we're actually watching Carl just listening to himself on tape, which we've seen before. Usually he will listen for a while, then he'll stop, and then he'll kind of pick up the story and go on from there. This kind of reminds me of, uh, I'm trying to remember which episode it was, but we never really know where Carl is at the beginning or the end of this episode. It's not like, you know, usually we'll end up at the last place where he's at, you know, like on the dock for the werewolf or back of the office or something like that. But this one, I'm not really sure where Carl is. He introduces the story, and then we go to, as you said, Tom Skerritt and his campaign manager. We find out very quickly that Tom Skerritt is up for election, and we see a lot of political posters. And we get almost immediately the conflict that the campaign manager knows that Skerritt is up to no good, and he's going to go to the DA and, and rat him out on all this stuff. And he makes the horrible mistake of getting into the elevator with Tom Skerritt, not knowing that Tom Skerritt can turn himself into a dog that can somehow not get hurt by a falling elevator. Well, and let's be honest here, who else in this world wouldn't make the mistake of getting in an elevator with Tom Skerritt, not realizing he can turn into an invulnerable dog? Young Tom Skerritt with that awesome mustache. I mean, I'll take old Tom Skerritt. I'll take I'll take any Tom Skerritt you got, as long as he's got the mustache. Well, that's become kind of part of his 
thing, right? I mean, you know, most people, if you say Tom Skerritt, don't know who he is from name alone. But if you say Captain Dallas from Alien, they're like, oh, okay, yeah, Captain Dallas from Alien. So, you know, his mustache is great. He plays the villain part so well that it makes me, it's kind of disappointing that they haven't really written very memorable villains up until this point. Villains that are given an opportunity to do something. But Richard Anderson in The Night Strangler, who, fantastic actor, not given anything to do. He's, he gets like four lines of dialogue in the last like five minutes of the episode so you know it's like what are you guys doing you got tom scarrett doing lines but you got richard anderson not doing anything and then you have eric braden playing a guy with mothballs taped to his face well we've had a villain who was uh an invisible ufo i mean no lines there <laughs> no memorable dialogue from that episode and very little dialogue from uh, our even our last episode where the guy was uh, kind of astral projecting and when he was astral projecting or you know the the spirit was out there being menacing He's not saying much anything. Yeah. It's weird. Like, all of a sudden, they're like, let's make a villain that that actually is interesting and has some dialogue. Right. Though, some people could complain, well, he's a dog 90% of the episode. But I think that that works. It's a little weird. I don't remember in any, you know, I brush up on my satanic readings with uh, Aleister Crowley and all that. But, you know, I don't remember turning into a Rottweiler being part of any sort of satanic ritual, best of my knowledge, and the ones that I've, you know, participated in. But maybe I wasn't paying attention during the the go-through of the ritual beforehand, but I don't remember the dog being a thing. It, this episode works less as like a satanic thing and more of like a, a werewolf golem type thing. Yeah. Less of like a, it's like the satanic thing at the end, it almost feels tacked on. Almost, yeah. Yeah, I mean, as soon as you see the pentagram collar, I'm just like, oh, okay. And don't forget, you know, Dana turned into a dog when uh, Ghost of the Grosarian came to Earth. <laughs> Oh, man. I was waiting for you to say something about Ghostbusters. She's a dog. You don't get a whole lot of people turning into dogs with satanic stuff unless, unless maybe, and maybe I missed it in The Shaggy Dog with Tim Allen, but maybe that was a satanic film about satanic rituals being performed on a a businessman who doesn't keep his promises. That could be it. But the, the whole dog angle in this episode, it works, but it's not, it's unlike any other kind of satanic thing I've ever seen in pop culture. Rottweilers, at least in this point in history, are being associated with demonic stuff because in 1976, we're going to have Rottweilers make an appearance in The Omen. Right. And then really a lot of this plot, once we kind of get going and figure out what's going on with Scarrett and his political ambitions, reminds me of Omen 3. So it's almost like the guy who wrote The Omen kind of looked at this and was just like, hmm, I can take a lot of material from this episode. I think you may actually be right because it does share a lot of similarities. It, I mean, it really does. Like that's, I, I hadn't thought about that up until now, but you're, you're right. Even down to the Rottweiler as like the companion slash, I guess, spirit, like animal avatar that you can trans, transmorg in, transmog into. Whatever the kids today are saying. I haven't played Magic the Gathering recently, so. <laughs> right? Sorry. <laughs> no problem. Uh, outside of the Omen, I've, I've never seen a Rottweiler being portrayed as like the demonic vessel of someone's soul. Right. And though typically, if I think of demon dogs, I tend to think more of Dobermans. But, I mean, we do have similar DNA going on here. Or St. Bernard's. Again, a normally kind dog turned into a demon dog. Yes. 
And Roddy's, they get a bad rap. I mean, one of the sweetest. Like pit bulls. Yeah, one of the sweetest dogs I've ever known was a Rottweiler. Yeah. yeah. That's stuff like Shack that gives him a bad name. Yeah, exactly. How did you like that crazy, spooky music that is in this episode? That's Jerry Fielding. I know. It's, I mean, again, it suits the episode. I mean, that's, that's the, that's the biggest compliment you can give is it suits the episode. And that, you know, when you look back at the other episodes of Cold Shack, the music always stands out because it's always really well done. And this is just kind of keeping up with that kind of pattern of fantastic. I mean, in, in this day and age, music gets overlooked on shows unless it's the theme song of a show. Uh, I've been watching Twin Peaks again. And I mean, that show makes a point of using the music in a way that is memorable. I mean, it's like ingrained into your mind. And with Kolshak, it's kind of the same way. And I feel like that's a lost art on TV in this day and age is like using the music and the sound design to set a mood. And this episode of Kolshak's music is fantastic. I was really happy to see Stanley Adams show up in this episode. And we've actually talked about Stan Adams twice before. He is Louis the bartender in this episode, so very brief appearance, and I was kind of hoping he would come back, but he doesn't. But he was in the Norlis tapes. I think he was a tow truck driver in that, and then he was the used car salesman who sold uh, Scorsini a car in the original Night Stalker. Yeah, that's right. He's got that awesome voice. Yeah. Well, I'm also glad to see that Miss Emily is finally on screen as the woman from like five episodes ago. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We finally have come full circle. We talked about it on that episode. I believe that was the that was the Invisible Alien episode. They have they are they will be. I want to say she was actually in the the very first episode. I'm trying to remember because she was she was spying on somebody across the way and she was. yeah, it was the Ripper, because she was saying, like, oh, yeah, he goes, you know, when he goes out at night and blah, 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 and Carl goes over and is talking to her. She's the one that writes the letter that uh, he reads when he's kind of assigned to what would later become Miss Emily's advice column. Right. Miss Emily writes to Miss Emily, and here we are. It finally pays off. Yeah. Only... In, in, a, way, in a way that's kind of bizarre. <laughs> right. Only seven episodes later. And I don't know if she becomes this way in later episodes, but I remember Miss Emily's being really a curmudgeon but in this one she seems pretty hip especially when she's willing to lug all those books up five flights of stairs for kolchak and also giving him that sick hat that he immediately refuses to wear because <laughs> he looks like a pimp when she comes back from italy and says oh yeah i've just done my you know just returned from italy i was hoping that the leg lamp would come out you know and be like oh yeah fragile <laughs> oh jesus he looks like the mob boss from Godfather 2 that Robert De Niro puts down. Yeah, he looks ridiculous. I mean, there's part of me that wishes he wore the hat the entire episode, just because I think it would be funny to get, like, screen caps of that versus him, like, you know, looking like normal Kolshak with the little pork pie hat. But yeah, he looks, yeah, he looks like, I forget the character's name, but yeah, the one in the flashbacks. Um, I can't remember. I want to say, like, Don Fabrizio or something, but I'm... I forget what they call him in in uh jane austen's mafia but they have some goofy goofy it's probably like don boyardi or something but like he looks like a stereotypical mobster all he needs is his jacket draped over his shoulders right and doing that thing with the fingers like (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah you know exactly what i'm doing right mancha mancha yeah yeah (laughs) and yeah finally some good 
Tony and Carl interaction. And I love the back and forth. I love the banter in this episode. No, yeah, it's great. I mean, you always get the sense that Tony has had it up to here with Kolshak, yet he keeps him around for for whatever reason. Like, realistically, no one would keep someone like Kolshak around. But yet he keeps him around out of maybe pity, maybe, I don't know, pity, I guess. They're friends, but they're always fighting. They're always at each other's throats. And Vincenzo never believes him. Right. And he's on him about his work ethic like crazy in this episode. Yeah. I wish I had someone with better work ethic. You know what you're getting with Kolshak. <laughs> right. Carl, why aren't you typing? Hey, he's always got some crazy story that he's chasing down. That just happens to be true, and you just miss it by this much, a la The X-Files. Right. A, a la The X-Files, a la Kolshak. Check the night star. Right. Yeah. Now let's be honest. Who's sexier, Vincenzo or Scully? I think I know my answer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was really happy to see Robert Doqui show up as the cop on the beat that just happens to show up when the dog is attacking uh, the uh, political, like I guess she was like a secretary or something, who was running after them with the briefcase that had the letter to the DA and all this. And Robert Doqui, for people who may not know, he would go on from being a police officer here in Chicago to running the police department in old Detroit uh, before Omnicom came in and took over and instated the Robocop program. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. So maybe that's why I like it. It's a, it's a Robocop prequel. And that's what this is. We've got a Predator prequel. We've got a Robocop prequel. This all exists inside the Shack Connected Universe. Kolchak, the Night Stalker, Connected Universe. The ICS? See you? Uh, oh, <laughs> Jesus. Oh, he's fantastic. I like I like how at one point he's like, I'm not going to say anything else unless you turn this off. Because he doesn't want to get on tape that he shot at a dog and the dog, like, absorbed all the bullets. Like, what? Like, you already said that you shot at this dog, like, from four feet away and missed, yet you won't say on tape that it's the darndest thing that this dog didn't die? Well, cutting hairs there, man. Like... And I was shocked that he showed up at the hospital because I was like, okay, this guy's just in this one scene. And then when they showed him again, he was at the hospital. I was like, oh, okay, cool. And I was almost hoping that they would team up, that he'd be like, you know what's going on with this dog? And then they would go off together and they would solve mysteries together. But whatever. <laughs> That's wishful thinking. I know. I like Robert Duque a lot, though. Well, I like Jack Greenwich, too. And again, it's like... I like Shack a lot. I like the character. I like Darren McGavin, but he, he lacks that, he lacks that other part. He lacks a sidekick. And that's what was so good about Monique Marmelstein when she was on the show was that she kind of provided that foil for him because all of the good shows, for the most part, a character has a foil, especially a show like this. You almost require it for the witty banter. And yes, he has Vincenzo, but Vincenzo, again, we've talked about this multiple times now, Vincenzo is always in the office. He's never there with him. And so Vincenzo's character, as much as I like him, he's getting to a point where it's a little one note. I don't believe you. Okay, I'm not going to go out with you and see anything anyway, so I guess I'll keep not believing you. Like, I love their back and forth, but his character is becoming one note because you can't, he, he just keeps not believing him. I hate to admit it, but you're right. We're almost halfway through the the show at this point. Oh, that makes me sad. Maybe it'll change. Yeah, I know. Oh, but, you know, that's the unfortunate truth about this show and the time it was written is that the narrative structure of TV shows then is very different than what it is now. A show now, a sitcom even, if it doesn't have a a season-long through line, no one is interested. Kolchak actually being demon-possessed and having murdered his own. Oh, no, I'm not going to go there. 
hey, you know what? Say what you will about Coal Shack 2006, but I don't think it's that bad. No, I I keep doing the fool's errand of trying to defend it in the Kolchak fan groups because people just rag on it all the time. And I just go, if you go back and watch it, it's actually not that bad. And then they say, get out of here, youngin. To be honest, it's not as good as Kolchak the Night Stalker. But at the same time, there are bad episodes of this show. I think we've seen at least two, if not more. And we're going to see more. As we near the midway point of the original run of the show, the zombie and the werewolf are the two episodes that have been the weakest so far. But, you know, seven episodes and two movies and you've only had two bad episodes? That's pretty good. That's like, you know, uh, what is that? Like under 20% so far? So, it's not bad. So far, so good. So far, so good. Well, you mentioned Jack Greenwich, and I think we should definitely stop here and play an interview we did with Mr. Greenwich, uh... It was a couple months ago, and it was a while ago. It was a while ago. It wasn't fair to him to talk to him at that point. But what you gonna do? Did you know we didn't talk to him about this at all? But did you know that after he kind of left acting for a little bit, he became a prop maker? And from what I understand, he was the one that designed the key ring, the rabbit's foot key ring that John Malkovich used to carry bullets in. Um, in the line of fire. No, I didn't know that, but that's amazing. Yeah, at least that's the story. See, we could we could have talked to him and seen if that was true or not. Mm, we missed our chance. Yeah. I thought you were going to say he made something crazy, like he worked on the lightsaber that Luke Skywalker used. It's like, no, it's way more insane than that, because like you wouldn't even think of that. Well, now, who's the guy that made the wooden gun, though, that Malkovich uses? Because that is pretty awesome. I kind of want to use my 3D printer and print one of those off. Now someone else is listening, and it ain't our it ain't our loyal listeners, Mike. That's somebody else. All right, we'll listen in as we play this interview with Jack Greenwich, and we'll be back right after that in these brief messages. Attention, attention. Are you a fan of MASH, one of the most groundbreaking television series in history? Then take a listen to the MASH 4077 podcast, where hosts Kenny, Simon, and Al discuss their thoughts episode by episode. They will also share with you some little-known behind-the-scenes information, trivia, and so much more. So come and find them on iTunes by searching MASH 4077 podcast or online at www.mash4077podcast.com. How to continue a television series after a major actor has left the cast. Part 2. The Blake 7 Method. Remove the character from the script. Introduce a new replacement character. Eventually, few of the original characters will be present, and the series will barely resemble its original form. For more about British science fiction television, listen to the British Invaders podcast. www.britishinvaders.com you decide to become an actor? How did you get your start in the business? I always performed as a, as a child. I, I danced and was in plays and uh, uh, learned to tap dance in Zero McKinney's Dance Studio on Vermont Avenue. And I think I went once or twice a week and learned to tap dance. I had a partner and we tap dance and sang and, and did performances. 
And in, and I was in school plays, too. My mother was an actress, you know. Probably that had to do with it. I love the world of fantasy. It, I think it's fantastic to get us from our drum little world that we think we're in when we're not at all. So you think you probably caught the bug from her? I don't know. You know, my aunt was an actress for some time, too. And, you know, just community theater. But I don't know. It's just thing that I just did. When you first got into the business, it looked like you did a lot of uh, television work, and it was kind of the golden age of TV with all the, like, Schlitz Playhouse and, you know, Father Knows Best and these kind of things. How was that for you? Well, it was it was a brilliant time because I went to Los Angeles City College Drama Department, which was a, which still is a great school, but at that time, when television just started, they had one star for a television series, and most of the series were half hour, and there weren't many hour shows, and so they had one star, so then they'd hire everybody else, so there was a lot of work, you know, you could do a lot of things, and I never turned down anything, I didn't care whether it was one or two lines, I just liked working, you know. Rebel Without a Cause was pretty early in your career, would you consider that kind of your breakout, or, or how was that experience for you? It's unbelievable, and it's still going on now, you know. I just did an interview for CNN. They're doing something, I guess it's supposed to come out in September, on the Rebel Kings, on James Dean, you know. I don't know how much news of my interview, but somebody from England. I'm always asked questions about Jimmy Dean. It was interesting uh, because I was... I had already signed, not signed, but I had a wardrobe fitting for Forbidden Planet. My agent called and said, they haven't decided on Rebel Without a Cause, but you do have a part in Forbidden Planet. What do you want to do? And I said, I said, well, you decide. She says, I can't decide. You have to decide for yourself. And I'd already had two interviews with, one interview with David Weisbart and, uh, and the director. And I said, well, I think I'll wait, you know. And so it was like two or three months with a couple more interviews and then a screen test with Jimmy, which they finally decided, yes, okay, you know, uh, you you have the role. So it was a really a great experience, you know. And then the, and the whole gang of us sort of hung together all those years. Unfortunately, you know, we used to go out and talk about the movie making, and, and I'm the only one, I think, left anymore. It was a great experience, and, and we hung together, the rest of the gang, for a long time talked about uh, James Dean, but I mean, Natalie Wood and Sal Mineo, I mean, just so many talented actors in that film. Oh, yeah. It just took off, you know, and, and Dennis, you know, it, it just took off. With me. Dennis was under contract at the time, you know, under the, uh, in the studio. He'd done a, a medic, a television medic, which was really wonderful. And so they signed him to a contract. The rest of us were all freelance. Corey may have some sort of contract, because I noticed he did some films afterwards at Warner Brothers before he became a director. But Steffi and, and Beverly, Beverly Long and I went to college together. I had an interview for the film, and I thought, God, Beverly would be great for this film. And I called the college, and, and one of the teachers she knew, and they, they said, oh, no, she's ill, and she's gone back to San Diego. And I, I got her phone number, and I called, and I said, you better get up here. There's a film you should be in, you know. And so she got up, and uh, she got in the film. Unfortunately, her all her lines were in French. She was supposed to be a French student, and so it didn't work, you know. So everything was it was all cut, you know. But anyway, yeah, it's you know it, that's how we've all stuck together. As a matter of fact, because of Beverly, I have Deborah Lynn as a, a manager. So it goes clear back to college. You know, your connections are just you never know what's going to happen. 
How is Nicholas Ray to work with as a director? Brilliant. The best director I've ever had in anything I've ever done. And I worked with Michael Curtiz, and I can't remember any of the others. But, you know, I've worked with a lot of directors. He was interested. He made you feel that he was interested in your character, no matter how big or how small it was. He was interested in you, and he, he was very disciplined. So many people have said, I mean, even Anne Duran said, oh, Jimmy Dean directed the picture. Well, he didn't direct the picture. Nick had the quality to let you bring something to do it than to tell you exactly what to do. Then if it wasn't right, he'd say, no, just do it this way. Or, no, don't do, do, don't do too much of that. Do just a little bit of this, you know. No, he was wonderful. It's, it's, it's too bad that so many of the people on the film ended up with sadness at the end of their lives. You mentioned Michael Curtiz, and I know you worked with him on King Creole, which probably, to me, one of the best films that Elvis was in. But tell me, how was it working with Walter Matthau and Carolyn Jones? At the end of the shooting, Walter Matthau said, oh, why don't we go to lunch? And I said, okay. He said, meet me down. We were at a hotel in, in New Orleans. And I said, okay. And so I went and I waited and I waited. And finally I called the desk and I said, oh, could you give me Mr. Matthau's phone no uh, room number? And they said, oh, he's checked out. So he stood me up. He invited me to lunch and stood me up. <laughs> no, Carolyn Jones was fun. She was married to Arian Spilling at the time. And he was on the set all the time. He was just a writer then. One day, uh, you know, Carolyn Jones played a prostitute on the film, whatever. And they finished a scene where Walter Matthau was hit her, I guess, and knocked her down. Anyway, she's on the floor. And Michael Curtiz said, get up, you old whore. And she got up and she walked off the set. And she said, I'm not coming back till he apologizes. And so he said to the assistant director, oh, tell her I apologize. He said, no, you have to apologize over the loudspeaker. There's funny stories about him that, I think on one story I heard that uh, Earl Flynn film, you know, he said, lunge. And everybody said, lunge, hour. He said, no, I meant lunge, lunge, lunge with your sword. Looking back now to realize the amount of films that he directed, I was unaware of how important he was at the time. I remember when I went on the interview, I had an interview for a couple of television shows that day, too, and I was sure I'd get the television shows. And I was at Paramount, and I was sitting outside this this little gray sort of industrial hallway. And they said, oh, Mr. Wall, uh, we'll see you now. And so this door opened up. At the end of, like, two blocks away was his desk with awards and bookcases and posters. And I was so overwhelmed, I couldn't utter a word. And finally, Paul Nathan, who was the associate producer on the film, after I got the role, he said, you have the worst interview personality of any actor I've ever known. And I said, well, fortunately, it was for a deaf mute, and I didn't have to do anything, you know. I think I got it because there, a person had already been signed for the film, and he felt the part was too small, and he decided not to do it. And I similarly looked like him, and I'm sure that's probably why I got it. You had been in between Wagon Train and Gunsmoke. I mean, those shows were on forever. What were your experiences like working on those shows? I was doing a gun smoke, a small part where I got killed right in the beginning with someone robbing it, you know. And I got home and I called my agent, or, or he called me and said, oh, you're doing a gun smoke. And I said, oh, Jack, I just did a gun smoke. He said, no, you're doing one next week, too. And I thought, oh, how great. I'll go in and I know the people. And I, you don't have to establish that. Hello, how are you? It's good to work with you and all that sort of crap, you know, again. 
I went on the set. They didn't remember me from the week before. And I had the lead in that episode. It's interesting when you're working on a series, like when we did The Night Stalker, you know, there were so many guest stars and stuff. But mostly I worked in the uh, in the office, so I never got to work with them. I mean, there were some good friends of mine, Chuck Aitman and, and Madeline Ruger were on the show and Kathleen Freeman. I never got to see them, you know, because I wasn't working that day. Wagon Train, I think I did three or four of those, you know. And they, they had it pretty down pat, what was going on and what you did and, you know, and as long as you learned your lines and said them, I and you know, and you were adequately good enough, you know, you worked them again. Today, you, if you do a television show or any of the shows that are on it, you cannot do it again. You know, you can't be a repeat person unless, unless you're signed for a recurring role, you know. Yeah, we were just talking about that, um, just saying that you would see the same actors pop up in different roles. Like, uh, I'm a big fan of MASH and seeing different people come in as one week they're a lieutenant the next week they're a casualty and just the way that that would move around and it seems like you know looking at your your roles on gunsmoke and wagon train it's like yeah one week you're this person the next you know you get shot and or you're the lead and never the, you know, the, the there's no continuity as far as those roles no you say you're a big fan of mash my friend richard Young uh, had a recurring role on that yeah i think he played the an interpreter or something like that he's He's, he looks Chinese, but he's half Chinese, half Mexican. He just got married again. <laughs> yes, he just called me the other day and said he was so excited. He said, I'm getting married, you know, at our age. Oh, well. <laughs> he was very happy, and I was happy for him. Now, I read when it came to Kolchak, I'd read that you were supposed to be on there for one episode. Yep, right? Yep. Uh, I did the first episode. I was taking my grandmother to Europe. Uh, she was the first one born in this country. Our family came from Wales, and she'd been riding a cousin for 80 years. You know, my grandmother was 90 at the time. And planned the trip. Um, I had met Darren when he did Blood, Sweat, and Stanley Pool. I auditioned for the role that the other the other lead played, which I didn't get. And then I did an outsider where I played a hairdresser that was trying to pick him up. And we just sort of hit it off. It was really a a fun day, and he said, let's go to lunch. We had lunch, and it was a really a good experience. But when the Night Stalker came up, you know, there were several people auditioning for the role. They called me, and they said, after we did the one episode, Darren liked the character and wanted to have characters to go on in the, in the, uh, the rest of the show. And I was taking my grandmother to Europe, and, and I, uh, they said, we'd like to do, give you uh, three episodes. And I said, no, I'm because we'd made all the plans and everything. I said, no, I'm going to Europe. I mean, I'd never turned anything down in my life. And so they said, well, we'll give you seven episodes. And I said, no, I'm going to Europe. You know, and so finally they said, well, we'll give you every episode. We'll pay you if you're not even in the episode, and we'll give you co-star billing. I called my grandmother and I said, well, this thing has come up about this television show. And she said, honey, we're not dead yet. We'll go next year and you'll have a lot of money. So we did. Obviously, like you said, you worked with Darren before. So working with Darren again on Night Stalker, what was that like versus the previous time? It was fantastic working with Darren and Simon and, and Ruth McDevitt. You know, they were all really professional stage actors. I guess there was problems going on with Darren and the producers, but... You know, on the set, there was no problem with all four of us. 
you know, even when when Carol Ann joined the the cast, it was then very enjoyable working. I was curious if any of that kind of filtered down to you guys at all, as far as that that conflict, because I know they even replaced your original producer with what Cy Shermack came in to quote unquote fix the show. I was look, looking at that thing that uh, Divisiac wrote just the other day, and it said that Cy Shermack thought it was for real, and Darren thought it was a sitcom. I don't think Darren thought it was a sitcom, because we didn't play it for laughs, we played it for the truth. And I remember Cy Shermack called me to his office one day and said, you know, you can't play the character like you're playing it. And I said, well, I'm playing what's written there. He said, oh, you have to play against that. I said, well, why do I have to play against it when what is written? Well, just play against it. And I went, well, okay. And then a couple of episodes later or whatever, he said, oh, you're doing exactly what I want. And I thought, I don't know what that is. I'm doing the same thing I always did, you know. I know when, when Darren was working on FX, he'd, he was not feeling well. And he said, would you go to the studio with me and just cue me? You know, and I said, oh, sure. So I'm cueing him. And in the back of his script folder is this 8 by 10 of this man. And I said, who's this? He said, oh, that's Cy Shermack. I said, why do you have a picture of Cy Shermack? Just to remember how much I hate him. I mean, I, you know, I haven't seen Cy Shermack since, I think, since that time he came. I, he asked me to come up to the office. But I don't know how he feels about the show. He went on to do chips and did very well. and. You know, it's a crazy business. You're up and you're down and you're making money and then you're not making any money. And Had you done anything like that before as far as this kind of supernatural mystery show? Mm, no. No, I did a Twilight Zone with Shelley Berman. And that was an interesting job because when Shelley was playing himself, I was off camera feeding him the lines. So I worked the whole episode in just a couple of days that I would have worked if I was just performing, you know. And it's so funny because Shelley would say, I wouldn't read the line like that. And they said, Shelley, it doesn't matter because you're going to read the line. He said, oh, okay. But it was, it was a, yeah, I had a lot of fun doing that. But that's the only thing I can think of, except Forbidden Planet, if I'd have done it. But, you know, nowadays, it seems like you can do two things at once. And like in at King Creole, I worked the first couple of days of shooting and then the last couple of days in New Orleans. They had to carry me at that time through all the months of the films that even the, that I wasn't working, scheduled to work. Nowadays, they don't carry you. They pick you up and then they schedule when you can work, when you're going to work the next thing. So, you know, you can do a couple of shows at the same time. Like Jimmy was doing, they were doing Giant and Rebel at the same time and shooting around Jimmy. And their, their, their stage was just across from ours. Well, that must have been such a different world. The, the way that the studios were set up in those days. I mean, you've, you've experienced that whole change from the studio system to whatever it is these days. You watch Feud. I'm sure you did. It, it showed the progression. It's a little, some of it's a, a fantasy, but the first film I ever worked on was Interrupted Melody with, with Eleanor Parker. I played the piano and said a couple lines to her after she was crippled in a, in a, in a rehab hospital, you know. I had a dressing room on the lot. They sent a limousine to pick me up at the dressing room and drive me to the stage. Nowadays, you go on location and you drive to the location like, you know, 20 miles away. I did a commercial that was in San Diego, and my call was like 6 o'clock in the morning, and I thought, good Lord, I'm never going to make it. And if I get up at like 3 and drive to San Diego, so I went down the night before and stayed at the hotel. 
Oh, yeah, but, you know, you're making up money. You know, I don't, God, everything worked out for me. I, I'm okay, you know. I'm kind of curious, of the Kolchak episodes that you were in, do any of them stick out to you as ones that you enjoyed doing more than some of the other ones since you were essentially on every episode, but I think one? No, I missed two. Two, excuse me, two. I missed two. The first one that Carol Ann did and the last episode. And the last episode, they wanted me for another television show, that the thing about Robin Hood with with Dick Godier, and I can't remember the name of it. And my agent called and said, you know, they, they'd like you for a part in whatever that was, you know, but you still have one episode to do. And I said, oh, I know. He said, well, we'll turn it down. And I said, okay. And then I was, I was cut out of the last episode, so I could have done it anyway. But, you know, that only lasted a season two anyway. Now, during the whole episode of The Night Stalker, I had a full-time job at the Board of Education. I was running a drama department, which supplied props and costumes and play scripts and, and in-services for K-12, through 12, you know, through grammar school, through the high school. We helped teachers put on their productions. And I went to my supervisor. I said, you know, this television show has come up that I'm going to do. Should I, should I quit? And he said, oh, no, just see how it goes. Well, fortunately, most of the time that I worked, I worked at night. So I held both jobs. But, of course, my income was pretty ridiculous that year. I love the chemistry that you and Darren and then uh, Simon Oakland would have. I mean, especially some of those conversations in that newsroom setting. The way that you were used kind of as a comic foil was so good. Oh, well, thank you very much. I enjoyed it, you know. And I, I just... Simon was such a wonderful actor. Darren said uh, he came by the apartment when they were in New York, came by the apartment just a couple weeks before he'd passed away. He never said anything that he was ill at the time. He was probably just saying goodbye, you know. But the first time I ever saw Simon was in a play called The Great Sebastian with Alfred Lund and Lynn Fontaine. Great performers that only, you know, they were the Lunts of, they were great stage people. They only made one film, but did these wonderful performances and toured, you know, forever, you know. He worked with a lot of good people. I mean, you know, good actors. Just, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot of good performers that are still around that are not working, you know. You mentioned um, Carol Ann a little bit ago, and I know that you two remained friends for a lot of years after Kolchak. Dear Carol Ann, she just passed away, you know. I was so pleased that, you know, at one point, and, and one point in all actors' careers, there was nothing. You know, she couldn't pay her phone bill. And then just at the last years of her life, she got a commercial and then she got the Big Bang Theory and she was really at the top of her game. And then she checked out. We did a couple of those. Uh, there was a magazine called, well, it's gone out of my head too, uh, out of New York, was bi-monthly. Anyway, they did articles on both of us and They'd invite us to these autograph shows, and that's when we really got to know each other, you know. We'd sit there, and the people would walk by and sort of look like, who are these two people? <laughs> They'd finally figure it out, and we'd sign their autographs. And, but yeah, no, we had a good time. We usually spent Christmas and Thanksgivings together. And Dear lady, funny lady, you know, from Bensonhurst. When the show was over, of course, as a working actor, you're on to the next thing. But when did you kind of know that that Kolchak was one of those things that you had done where it had a lasting impression where people are still going to be talking to you 30, 40 years later about it. 
I don't think I really realized that it was. You know, all of a sudden it's it's on the air again, and especially at the at the autograph shows, I guess, because I was amazed. I went to college with Bobby Vaughn, and we were in New Jersey at one of those autograph shows, and he was at one of the tables. And I said hi, and he said, "What are you doing here?" I said, "Well, we've been invited because of the Night Stalker." He said, "Oh, what is that?" So he didn't know. <laughs> he didn't know what it was. You know, fathers and sons usually come up. Because the father grew up with the show and is passing it on to his son or his daughter. And those are the people that remember the show. I guess most of the people are in there who really watch the show are in their late 40s or 50s now who were kids at the time. That's how I saw it. Was, was my dad was like, I was probably in the midst of my X-Files love, like learning to love the X-Files. And then my dad was like, well... I'm going to buy you this DVD of Coal Shack, and that's kind of where I saw it. So it's not it's not unbelievable. It's a good thing, though, obviously, for you. Yeah, it's. I think it's it's on here in Los Angeles again on the FX channel on Sunday night. It seems like it hasn't gone off the air. I mean, between Netflix and then, yeah, FX, and there's a channel called MeTV that's playing it. So it feels oh, like that's it's, what it's on, it's TV. Okay, and it, yeah, it just feels like it's still in the air, which is really nice. You know, Darren was supposed to do six episodes of the X-Files, and that's when he had his stroke. You know, I was with him on the set that day, and he was really having difficulty with lines. So we finished him, and we went home, and they said, you want to stay for dinner? And I said, no, no, I, I want to go home. I just It had just been too much of the day. And I got home, and Kathy called and said, Oh, Darren's fallen and can't get up. Can you come over? I said, well, call 911. She says, he won't let me call 911. So I went over, you know, went over, and their bedroom was upstairs, and he was in the servants' quarters. And I said, he said, take me upstairs. I said, well, okay, Darren, you know. And I said, there was a pill that he took, you know. I guess it was for his high blood pressure. I can't remember what it was. I said, did you take your pill? And he said, no, I didn't. Oh, would you get it for me? So I did. And he took it with a glass of wine. I said, Darren, you can't take your pills with wine. He said, yes, I can. It's okay. And I said, okay. So I stayed a while and I went home and I called the next day and I said, how's everything going? She said, he's gone shopping, you know. And a week later, he had a stroke, you know, a massive stroke, you know. And his blood pressure was so high, they couldn't give him something they can give you so you don't have brain damage. How old are both of you? I am 45. And I'm 27. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. M Mike was kind of more the original, I guess, you almost target audience for Cool Shack, right, Mike? You would have theoretically seen it when you were growing up, almost. Well, I would have seen it in reruns, yeah, because it was yeah. on when I was like two, three years old. But yeah, we yeah. definitely caught it in reruns on like UHF channels. It has to be kind of bittersweet for you. Uh, see him every Christmas because I imagine you cannot go without at least or at least knowing that a Christmas story is going to be playing 24 hours a day every single Christmas and he just he makes that movie what it is it's wonderful it's brilliant you know I mean that's what most people know him from it's interesting what they I know when I was watching the feud thing and, and Betty Davis had a line of now only people are going to remember me as this white faced old hag well, I would assume most people my generation know you from Scrubs. Oh, really? I only did two episodes. Well, I mean, and most people my age aren't going and watching Coal Shack. I made an awful lot of money off of Scrubs because they rerun it so much. I mean, I was amazed. 
that show's still still out there, still going strong when it comes to the reruns, that's for sure. And they were very nice. You know, they filmed in an, an abandoned hospital. It was a real hospital. I noticed that I was in an interview the other day, and I guess one of the people were on and said people used to come there for emergency. No, this is not a hospital. What are you up to these days? Just today, I'm going on a tour of the caves and castles of France and Spain. I just, just called them today and made an appointment to go. I thought, you know, I love to travel. It's, you know, I think Darren and Kathy, or the, the Amazing Race got me into traveling. Just pick up and go. And, and so that's what I'm going to do. Usually I'm, I've done a lot of little documentaries. None of them have been great successes, but I'm working on one with a friend of mine, <clears throat> Judy Chaikin. I don't know if you know about Girls in the Band. It's a documentary on the women in orchestras and how they fared. It's really an inter- interesting documentary of how they were treated and how they were just, at one point, just women's band. But we're doing a thing on Hollywood Boulevard on the stars. Like, you know who Elvis Presley is, and you know who Jimmy Dean is. But then there's people like John Cromwell, who's James Cromwell's father, was a big director. So we're having a, a host. Supposedly, the thing that we put together is a host is walking down Hollywood Boulevard, pointing out the stars of people like Hattie McDaniel, uh, Hedy Lamar, who because of Hedy Lamar, we have the cell phones today. You know, people don't know those things. So that's a little project we're working on. It's 15 minute episodes, you know, with someone sort of explaining who they are. We're having a little difficulty getting money for it, but that's how it goes. You know, and then I did another documentary on, I worked at a prop house called Ellis Mercantile, which was started in 1908 as a pawn shop when a, when a, Filmmaker came by and wanted to buy a buy something. I think it was a glass eye to use in a film, and they said, "No, no, but we'll rent it to you." And that's how the house started. Well, I worked there for quite a few years, and so I did it closed. It closed about five or six years ago, but it was Hollywood's closet. You know, they had everything. I mean, upstairs in the fur room was the was the lion's costume from Wizard of Oz. You know, an umbrella used the big umbrella used in the Laurel and Hardy movie. You know, I mean, props are used over and over and over again. It's at the MGM auction. You walked through that place and you saw, my goodness, look at all the hourglasses from The Wizard of Oz. There were five of them and one broken one. Things were just used over and over and over again and or either thrown away. People are collecting them now. Just you talking about the history of these people who have stars on Hollywood Boulevard that... Some people might not know, unfortunately, but I like that you're bringing light to these these this, these pieces of 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 history that people might not otherwise appreciate. Well, Philip Ahn, you know, at that time he was uh, an actor, you know, played all Asians, you know, and his, he he was from the Korean uh, Asian population, and 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 as I remember, if I remember correctly, his father was was kept in Korea for some amount of time, and he and his sister worked to, for the Korean uh, uh, population, you know, in, in Los Angeles. Just things that that you don't know. You know them that they were actors, but what else did they do?
All right, we're back and we're talking about Kolchak the Night Stalker. That's the TV show, not the movie. And we're talking about the Devil's Platform, which is the political platform and not something that the Devil is standing on. So I guess he stands for no, To be for fair, it. it's both. Yes, true. And we get to see a little bit of the competition that the Devil has in this one, that our, our main candidate, Tom Skerritt, playing... What's his, he's got a... I thought they said at one point his name was... Robert D. Palmer, but then I thought at another point they said Robert W. Palmer, but I'm just going to say Robert Palmer, and then I'll think of him being simply irresistible. We get to see James Talbot, who is played by John Myers, and I thought it was Mr. Belvedere at first when I saw this guy, but unfortunately he wasn't, though he was a frequent flyer on the um, the Fantasy Island show. He was often having his fantasies fulfilled there. I mean, when you talk about Tom Skerritt as Robert W. Palmer, my mind goes immediately to Leland Palmer and Twin Peaks, and is this a prequel to Twin Peaks, and where's Killer Bob, and where's Mike, and that's that's where my mind goes. Mike! Mike! <laughs> <laughs> that's all I can think of, is just Laura Palmer, Cheryl Lee, just screaming at the top of her lungs. I'm actually kind of surprised that they named the opponent Talbot, because... Whenever I hear the name Talbot, and this might just be me, but whenever I hear that name, I immediately think of Larry Talbot, who was the Wolfman character from Universal's Wolfman films. So I was like, to your point earlier, thinking about Wolfman, I was like, oh, that, that would kind of make sense if they named Tom Skerritt's character Talbot. But I'm thinking too far into this. Well, wouldn't it make more sense if they named Tom Skerritt's character Donald Trump? I was waiting. I was wondering if you were going to be like, we're truly living in the Devil's Platform (laughs) universe of our world. (laughs) He is on the Devil's Platform. At night, Donald Trump turns into a Rottweiler and runs around the, the, you know, the White House. He probably... Barking at the Secret Service. He probably turns into a really nice, articulate guy. (laughs) Yeah, right? Yeah, he is the Rottweiler now. But, uh, again, you're right. When you think of Talbot, it it invokes in your mind the Wolfman. And, again, I just, I can't stress enough how kind of bizarre the dog thing is in the episode. Because, like, I like it, but at the same time, a dog? Right. Yeah. Right? I mean, it could have been a wolf. I guess it's because they already had a wolf. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I didn't really realize until this episode. Now, we we constantly see Carl with two main accoutrements, not counting his hat and his suit, but we see him with the tape recorder, and we see him with the camera. And I remember there was that whole thing about um, the film being developed. I think it was all the way, again, going back to the Ripper episode. And we've seen some film being developed through here, but I forgot how much photographs play a part in the Kolchak universe until I'm watching this episode and seeing a very painstaking process of Carl reproducing a photo from Palmer's files and then blowing it up. And I'm just like, oh, yeah, I remember working in the dark room when I was a kid. Oh, yeah, I remember how you use those three chemicals. And But, I mean, it takes a long time for him to do that. And now it's just like... You know, you would just do the computer scan in and you'd have the one guy going, enhance, enhance, enhance. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Well, and this this brings up something that I've never, I've read tons of articles about, but it's something I've never talked about with with someone else who is as into pop culture as I am. Can you imagine how shows like Seinfeld would exist in this day and age without one of the plot points of an episode being, they miss the call at their house. Right. 
it's the same thing. Now it's like they have to get the photos and they have to, you know, take the blank. I don't even know what it's called. That's how young I am. Turn it into a picture. Right. Expose it. Is that what it's called? Develop it. Yeah. Develop it. Right. So they have to develop the photo like in Ghostbusters 2. Like that's a whole plot point as much as you hate that movie. But that's what it reminded me of this. It's like this is a whole plot point that in this day and age just it wouldn't even matter. Well, I mean, it's the core of I don't know how many J-horror films where you. Right. You, oh, my God. Look at her face. You know, her face is blurred out in this photograph. And every time you take right. a picture of their face, it's blurred out. <laughs> Right, but like in this, like in now, with all with everyone with a, a a phone with a camera, and that's been the way it's been for like over a decade now. Like that's not that it, we just kind of just like eh, just kind of take it for granted. But I mean, back in the seventies or even in the nineties, the way technology worked was like a plot point in a in a movie or a show, and like that's lost today. You know how much I love Columbo, and so much of Columbo hinges every episode on what the one piece of technology is that the killer used or that Columbo can use to defeat the criminal. You know, there's one a very uh, great episode with Dabney Coleman and he fakes a photo at a traffic cam or there's multiple I mean, there are so many times that film comes into it and when the, you have the uh, the the mark in the upper right hand corner to switch the reels you know, or when the uh, Chuck McCann puts a nickel into the reel of film so that it will fall and tell him when it's time to switch reels and all this kind of stuff. So every episode for, I mean, really, I think almost every single episode has like a gizmo or something going on in it that helps Columbo figure it out, even to the point of just like, like, uh, another political episode of Columbo where, um, a guy calls from a, uh, a phone and he's supposed to be uh, out on the road, but he's actually in his office because you can hear a clock in the background. And it's just like, oh, well, where really was the phone at? <laughs> that lack of technology is kind of lost now a little bit. It's it's caused writers to get a little bit more creative and adapt to what could go wrong now with technology or lack of technology. But yeah, it's just it, it always it, it feels quaint in a good way. It's like, look at Kolshak developing those photos. Well, tell me this. I've only watched this episode one time because I absolutely hated it. But wasn't the end of Seinfeld when they were somebody took was it phone footage of them laughing at the guy and then they got brought up on charges for the Good Samaritan law that they didn't help out somebody? I mean, wasn't weren't cell phones kind of the end of Seinfeld? Right, yeah. Well John Panette, yeah, he was like a big fat guy and they're like, Oh, look at the fat guy and they don't help him when he gets like robbed or something. Yeah, that's and everyone hates the ending of the show, but at the same time, like it's kind of what Seinfeld has been. I always wanted do you mind if I go off on a little tangent here? Sure. This is my dream ending of Seinfeld. Seinfeld was so good at making references to other things, especially other pop culture things. I think of like George giving the con yell or Kramer across the hall and them kind of doing the, the shot of, uh, from the Godfather with the door closing and Kay on the other side of the door, but this time it's Jerry. I wanted the last episode of Seinfeld to pay homage to like so many other last episodes of television like i wanted there to be at some point you know kramer getting a uh, a motorcycle 
and Jerry has to fly off to some gig out in California or something, and he gets on this helicopter because he needs to take off to get to the airport in time, and he looks down, and there's Kramer there, and written in rocks, it says goodbye, like the end of MASH, and then at one point, George wakes up, and it's not Suzanne Plachette, like the end of New Heart, but he wakes up, and there's Marissa Tomei next to him, and then, you know, like, and then uh, finally, like, you know, you, you end it with uh, Wayne Knight Kramer there with the snow globe and he's actually like laughing maniacally because all the characters are actually inside of the snow globe. That's how I wanted Seinfeld to end. I wanted Seinfeld to end where it turned out that George has been dead the whole time a la Roseanne. <laughs> but then Seinfeld to come back and them to retcon that because they realize how fucking stupid it was. <laughs> Congratulations folks. You can complain enough to change the show. Congratulations. But when they come back it's just Michael Richards just yelling the n-word over and over and over again. Every time I'm having a bad day, I watch that video of Michael Richards and I think, you know, I'm not having that bad. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just not. I'm not having that bad of a day because he had a worse day and his career was ruined because of it. And if it had happened now, he would have been roasted alive. No, no. If it had happened now, he would have gotten his own show. I mean, you haven't you read Roseanne's Facebook page? She just got a show. She's fucking crazy. That's true. Hey, hey. And she's working with Johnny, Johnny G. John Goodman. He's back. Oh, man. What are you doing to yourself, John G? Uh, John G. Like of the money. That 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 sweet sweet green. It's hard to. I mean, it's hard to pass it up. Just wait till that next huge blockbuster Coen Brothers movie that you know is going to be there, and you'll have a bit part. Yeah, come on. I mean, my, oh. my God, how much did uh, Hail Caesar make? It had to have been at least in the tens of thousands of dollars. <laughs> I mean, come on. They need you for that Flintstones movie that they're going to make in five years. You know, Rosie would be in that. <laughs> I would watch. A Flintstones movie that is a sequel to the original film with all of the characters like o- older, and then it's about like Bam Bam and Pebbles as like teenagers. I would watch that, but they could never do it because Rick Moranis has retired. Yeah, never come back. And you know what made Rick Moranis retire? He turned into a dog. <laughs> and you know what this episode of Coal Shack is about? People turning into dogs. And then the best part of this episode is that Tom Skerritt stays as a dog. I love it. I love it. It's great. I thought it would have been even better if at the end of the episode, and this is just me, right? So you talk about your Seinfeld ending. The episode would have been so good, okay? Do you know where I'm going with this? If the dog was Kolshak's pet for the rest of the show, (laughs) I would have laughed so hard. I would have been like, this is fucking gold. If it's just Kolshak's dog for the rest of the show. That would have been like, great. Amazing. It's it's right there. Like, how did you get this dog, Kolshak? Eh, I mean, I would tell you, you wouldn't believe me, but it used to be a guy. And now he's not anymore. But he's just a dog. It's a long story, Vincenzo. Long story. But I guess you're led to believe at the end of the episode that even though he is a dog, he's still Tom Skerritt inside. Well, I don't because know. Because he like he... runs off with his wife. I guess, but he turns nice. I mean, the dog turns right. nice. So like, is Tom, it, was that dog a dog? And then Tom Skerritt like went into it and possessed it? Or was that him morphing into a dog? And then when the when the pentagram necklace or choker got thrown into the holy water, his like soul was taken out of the dog? Or he became good? Or he became less demonic? Like it's never, it's never, and again, this is me 20 for centering the show. But like, I just want the dog to be Kolshak's pet. That's all I want. Yeah. Yeah. Because that would have been great. 
That would have been great. And I I like the idea of Tom Skerritt being in there and being trapped for at least the rest of the life of the dog. But I like I I don't want it to be like that episode of Black Mirror where like the dog can hear Tom Skerritt. I just want Tom Skerritt to be like in there on pause or whatever, or just like you mean like in Get Out? Yeah, like I, like yeah, like exactly. a passenger like, in your own like a passenger in your own body. Exactly like Get Out. Yes. Yeah, that would have been great. I would. I'm on board. Yeah. I mean, that's what that's what I assumed happened because of the way that they show like the dog smiling and like being like cordial towards Kolshak. So because you never get the sense that the dog is its own thing. You get the sense that the dog is Tom Skerritt and then he gets like Tom Skerritt is not in control anymore. Right. Then you get the teacup has been stirred and he's floated down through the chair and just looking up and can't do anything yeah and again that's why like i said at the top of this episode that's why i honestly thought this episode of the show was very twilight zone-esque yeah yeah because this is that devil's bargain yeah and how does it come back to bite you in the ass right you become the dog forever so i i guess he sold his soul to the devil but he didn't sell his soul to rock and roll if only dogs lived a little bit longer, because now he's only got a few years in there. Yep, it's true. But then the rest of his life in hell. <laughs> Maybe he's already in hell. We'll never know. Yeah. I would like the Cole Shack the Night Stalker dog prequel film. <laughs> Come on, it's a thing. Ah, okay, all right. <laughs> <laughs> so, Chris, you mentioned what's going on at the Culture Cast in January, but what's going on now in February? Oh, well, we've transitioned from one of the few auteurs, and I say this as a total movie nerd, one of the few auteurs still left operating in Hollywood from the mid-70s to rom-coms. Talking about romantic comedies, talking about some ones that you maybe haven't seen with some people that are big actors now but weren't at the time. Uh, We almost watched Breakfast at Tiffany's. I decided not to because, let's be honest, that movie hasn't aged well. No. At all. No. Uh, Mickey Rooney, I'm looking at you. Holy shit. <laughs> I'm like playing if that. If you don't know gif. what I'm talking about, <laughs> you, if you don't know what I'm talking about, go watch it. I'm playing that, that gif in my head of a little uh, African American kid going, that's racist. <laughs> I'm playing the scene in my mind of Krusty the Clown from The Simpsons trying to revitalize his career, essentially doing the Mickey Rooney bit on stage. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's not great. If you've never seen Breakfast at Tiffany's, Mickey Rooney, a white actor, plays the upstairs Japanese neighbor of Audrey Hepburn. And it is full-on fake teeth, big glasses. That's where the miso sali uh. line comes from, is that performance. And it's from a movie that's, you know, widely acclaimed by a lot of people. But we decided not to do that because, honestly, it would have just been us ripping on Mickey Rooney for half an hour. But if you've never seen The Truth About Cats and Dogs... I have seen The Truth About Cats and Dogs. <laughs> Uma Thurman. Uma Thurman, who I don't find that attractive, I would go for Janine Garofalo in a heartbeat. Uma Thurman before one Tarantino got his nasty little claws into her. Or paws or feet, maybe. Mm. Mm. Tarantino. That's a, he's a guy. He makes movies. What is up at the Projection Booth podcast since your, uh, your uh, self-imposed exile to China? They finally brought you back to the States. They let you back. Yeah, they had to deport me, and so now I'm back here in the United States. <sighs> so They found out that your actual name is Wu Jingpin, and uh, yep, so... 
Yeah, after uh, my long career doing choreography on different Hong Kong films, uh, they finally caught on to me that I couldn't speak Cantonese or Mandarin at all. I could just use a lot of good hand gestures. Yeah, I'm uh, finally back here in the States and back to doing the Projection Booth podcast. Not as regularly as I would like because... uh, you know how I tend to record interviews like months, if not years ahead of time. Now I'm kind of behind on stuff. So I'm just like, hey, we're doing this episode in a month. Can I talk to you in two weeks? Yeah, no, semester's starting. Um, why don't you call me in like three months? So there goes that episode. Uh, hey, I'm doing this episode about this thing uh, and you wrote a book about it. Can we talk? Yeah, 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 sure. That sounds great. And then a week goes by. Uh, you still up for it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, uh, how about in two weeks? It's like, well, there goes that episode. So, yeah. So I'm not going to promise anything for February or March or April. It's just going to, podcasts are going to come out and people are just going to have to deal. It's hard to get ahead when you're behind. Yeah. As, as one, from one podcaster to another, one of the dirty little secrets about podcasting is it's not easy. Uh, this part is fun, but the editing and the interviewing and the prep is hard. It takes time. Uh, don't let anyone who does podcasting tell you otherwise. Otherwise, don't listen to their podcast because it's probably not that good. Uh, if they're not putting in some prep time and some editing time into their podcast. But yeah, once you get behind with podcasting, it's like a snowball rolling down a hill. But editing is so hard. (laughs) I don't want my podcast to sound good. I like them burps and fart noises in the background said a large majority of podcasters. I just turn on the microphone and we riff for two hours. Maybe three. I let life happen, bro. (laughs) If it ain't live, why even bother? Yeah, man. Mm, Those sounds in the room, they add character and flavor to the podcast. Know what I mean? Oh, Jesus. So, you're just behind at the projection booth. I'm behind, but yeah. You can still go find out what's happening over at projection-booth.com. Follow me at uh, ProBoothkus over at uh, Twitter. And how about you, Chris? Where can people go to get the CultureCast? CultureShock.com slash CultureCast is where you can go to listen to the CultureCast. We're also on iTunes and the Google Play Store. So we're there as well. You can follow me on Twitter at CultureStash for random musings. And I don't know, I tweet gifts sometimes. That's a thing kids are into these days. And uh, CultureShocked on Twitter as well. I think kids call them GIFs, though. I don't think any kid calls them. Oh, thank God. <laughs> I like peanut butter. <laughs> no, you don't. They just need to stop that turn out that term out yep, uh, they do and anybody who uses it just stomp a mud hole in their ass nerd <laughs> nerds <laughs> yeah and you can find more about this show and our past episodes over at colchactapes.com i was surprised i was just uploading stuff to the blog talk radio spot where you can get this podcast as well and it goes up on iTunes and all major platforms like that. And then I had a guy from Australia write to me a few weeks ago and say, yeah, can you update colchacktapes.com? Because that's the only way that I can get these episodes. And rather than explain to him that that was completely erroneous, I said, okay, because I've been very lax in updating the site. So the site is updated and you can get this episode there, and now people can get all the episodes there, or Blog Talk Radio, or iTunes. I think we're on Stitcher, maybe Zoom, but eventually we'll be everywhere. I think even iHeartRadio might carry us. We won't be on 
the uh, what's that thing that kids like? Spotify. We won't be on Spotify because apparently you can't have any copywritten music in your episode if you're up on Spotify. So fuck that. But what about on vinyl? Um, it might be on vinyl. I can probably talk to Rob St. Mary. You know, he he runs a uh, record label. So sick vinyl pressing of our first episode. Yeah. Why not? Yeah, Colored sure vinyl, orange vinyl, maybe with the blood red sticker. Ooh, okay. Ooh, yeah, I'm down. All right, that's a stretch goal. Follow us on Kickstarter. Picture disc. <laughs> yeah, picture disc. Shaped like a shaped like a pork pie hat. <laughs> the vinyl's cut like a pork pie hat. I gave my copy on Palmer to Vincenzo for his editorial comment. It was the way he crumpled it up that gave me the distinct impression he wasn't going to print it. And Robert Palmer, white hope of the blue collar, darling of the demographics. The popular explanation is that he was kidnapped, possibly killed by radicals. A tragedy, people said. They don't realize, of course, that he did keep one campaign promise. The promise of his soul to his master, the Prince of Darkness. Lorraine Palmer drove off before I could get to her. Her car was found the next day, but she never was. Wherever she is, I hope she has a dog to keep her company. And fetch her slippers. And lick her hand. 